Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1964 film King and Country. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Barrett, um, this is our our second movie in this run of looking at um, uh, kind of military courtroom movies. Our third, if you throw in... Um, uh, if you throw in Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. So, you know, kind of thinking of these as a set is sort of interesting. Um, I'm curious, what is your history with this film? I think that you had said that you had never seen this before. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, this is a, a new film for me. And um, <clears throat> I ran across the title when I was doing some of the research on on Breaker Morant. And this uh, seemed like, as you said, it seemed like kind of a natural film to pair with Breaker Morant and also take us back to Paths of Glory and think about... Um, how they're similar and different as films about military court mar- courts martial. So did you go into this with any expectations, any, any knowledge of the film beyond that? Not really. And actually the, the other reason I was interested in the film, Sam, is um, I've known Joseph Losey, the director by reputation for many years, and I have never actually seen a Losey film before. So I went into it, and actually not knowing a lot about no, Losey's style as a director, but just knowing he was a highly regarded director. But otherwise, I really didn't know uh, what to expect. I'm glad you brought up Losey, because that's who I want to start with. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I'm curious, what, what are the things that you were aware of with him? Because I, I did a little bit of diving into him, because I he was not who I expected him to be. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Well, I was aware of him, first of all, because of his uh, his first film, The Boy with the Green Hair, which starred a young Dean Stockwell. And of course, I, I, I then knew Dean Stockwell from later films, like uh, he, he's in Blue Velvet. Uh, he was also on television in Quantum Leap. So so it's interesting. So that was one association. And then I also knew Losey um, as a collaborator with Harold Pinter. Uh, he, he made three films with Pinter. Um, but mainly, I guess I knew him as an expatriate director, um, somebody who, like Orson Welles, came from Wisconsin. Uh, but unlike Orson Welles, he was uh, well, like Orson Welles, he also lost his cachet in Hollywood. Uh, but unlike Welles, it was because of his communist uh, sympathies. He had spent time in the Soviet Union. He'd collaborated with Bertolt Brecht. Um, he was he was very definitely a, a communist, and when. He was under contract to RKO, and Howard Hughes uh, bought the uh, bought the studio. Um, one of the ways one of the ways they figured out who was a communist was they uh, would offer the director a film called "I Married a Communist," and if they turned it down, they knew that they were communists. And so they offered Losey that film, and he turned it down. And then they found various ways to sideline him after that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the expat thing because I didn't look anything up about the movie and I just watched it and I assumed, well, of course, Joseph Losey, this person I've never heard of, is a British director. <laughs> but I thought I should probably read a little bit about him. Um, I mean, and, and as you said, it turns out he's born in Wisconsin. He's a blacklisted filmmaker, which makes this movie interesting because I thought of I, my initial viewing of this really was through the lens of thinking about this as, you know, a British World War One movie. But knowing that about him, you know, makes you ask some other questions uh, as well. Now, the thing that I found interesting about Losey, I'm just going to run through some of my research here. He has a remarkable number of intersections and some of them very strange with people we've covered in this uh, Mm. in this podcast. For example, did you know he was a high school classmate with Nicholas Ray? 
in lacrosse wisconsin <laughs> who directed in a lonely place he no. uh you, you mentioned working with brecht he directed charles lawton the director of night of the hunter on mm-hmm. stage uh for brecht's galileo yeah. Uh, in 1951, he directs a remake of Fritz Lang's M. Yeah. Uh, in Hollywood, he collaborates on projects with Dalton Trumbo, who writes Gun Crazy. In 1949, he signs a three-picture deal with Stanley Kramer of The Defiant Ones. In 1966, he makes a movie called Modesty Blaze, starring Monica Vitti from La Ventura, which is also the book that uh, Vincent Vega is yes. reading in Pulp Fiction. Yes. Uh, in 1970, he <laughs> makes a movie called Figures in a Landscape, starring and written by Robert Shaw from Jaws. And in 1991, um, in the movie Guilty by Suspicion, a uh, lightly fictionalized Joseph Losey is played by Martin Scorsese, of, who directed Raging Bull. So he has all these. So he went from somebody who I thought, well, this is you know this British director who I didn't really know anything about. To like, well, he has he's crossed paths with so many different uh, different people we've encountered in this uh, uh, in this podcast. That's so yeah, that's uh, that's a, our version of Six Degrees of Joseph Losey, right? I guess so. Um, I, I, Sam, I, first of all, that's a great list. I'm so glad you 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 uncovered all that. But also, I have to thank you for reminding me of how I knew the title "Modesty Blaze" because I saw that he had directed that, and I thought, well, where where have I come across that before? And of course, as you said, it's it's the it's the book that's being read in Pulp Fiction. So I was. Thank you for scratching that itch. Absolutely. Um, so this film is made in 1964, um, which is a really important date. Why is why is 1964 an important year for this film? Because I think it's really significant. It's the 50th anniversary of World War One. Exactly right. So, um, so that I think sets up a major theme in this film. Um, if we think about uh, like so many other things that we've talked about in you know in this podcast looking i think at how this film starts he is he's laying out some ideas to say here's something i want you uh i want you to think about um and and it really is set up to think about uh this war and the film is an act of both uh remembrance and reflection so i want to walk through some of the things that are in the 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 opening of this film because I think mm-hmm. it is like a thesis statement for mm-hmm. for where this movie goes. So um, I was very excited with the first shots of this film because I have uh, I have taught a World War One course in London um, several times, so I recognized uh, very intimately some of the things he shows. So it starts with a shot of the top of the Wellington Arch on and Hyde Park Corner. Um, Wellington is obviously the uh, the the British hero of Waterloo. And so it starts with that. So that's a that's a very old war, a very victorious war for uh, for the British. If you if you go around London, there's all kinds of Napoleonic War monuments, you know, Trafalgar and um, and things to Wellington and Waterloo. And as you pull back, though, from that, you see another memorial. And this is uh, also on Hyde Park Corner. This is uh, Charles Sergeant Jaeger's uh, Royal Artillery Memorial to the First World War. So you see this bronze of a dead soldier and around the the bottom of it it says um uh, a royal fellowship of death mm-hmm. uh and then and then it pans around and you see the friezes on the sides of this you see a bronze of the the artillery driver kind of reclining and then it pans up to the big stone howitzer um mm-hmm. so he starts this movie um my colleague chris garrett would love this he starts this movie by saying let's think about memorials and remembrance 
Yeah. Um, so he starts with the very typical things you would think about, especially a Londoner would be very familiar with these with these sites. But then he moves on really quickly to show other types of ways of thinking about memorial. So he shows footage of an artillery explosion that then he like freeze frames into into a photograph, um, which I presume is potentially archival footage. I'm not sure about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we see rain and mud. We see now photos from the front. We see this kind of blown out forest. We see this dead horse that we keep coming back to. Um, so these are also kind of other types of memory or remembrance, you know, kind of in forms of more evidence, you know, firsthand evidence than a memorial. And then we get the A.E. Hausman poem, which is also another way to think about remembrance. Um, and this is uh, this is in the voiceover of our main character, uh, Hamp. So the, the Hausman poem says, uh, here dead lie we because we did not choose to live and shame the land from which we sprang. Life, after all, is nothing much to lose. Though young, we think it is, and we were very young, or, and, and we were young. So, so we get yet another memorial. So he's like laying out different ways to think about memorial and remembrance fifty years after the war, and then we get one more photo of a dead soldier that fades into Hamp. So we see kind of this idea of the. Uh, the the memory becoming the actual and our story kicks off. I loved this opening as, like I said, as a kind of a thesis statement for we're going to think about how things get remembered and how things get forgotten. And uh, I kind of loved this opening. Yeah, well, two two things about that. First of all, just noting that um, when we watched Walkabout a while ago, it ended with an A.E. Hausman poem. Uh, and this film begins with an A.E. Hausman, Hausman poem. So there, evidently there was an A.E. Hausman poem for every every occasion um yeah and and i think as you're saying you know shifting from this kind of fellowship of death to to the currently live hemp is also i think a foreshadowing that uh we are you know he he is he is currently the among the living but he is about to join that fellowship of death so even if you don't know anything at that point i think visually he has foreshadowed that for you um and i I think it's interesting to think about Hamp as well, like like who he is. One of the first things we learn about him in the kind of conversation that Hamp has with Hargreaves, the initial conversation, is we learn that Hamp is kind of the last remaining original soldier in this, mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, in this area. So he talks about how all of the rest of his, the people he uh, enlisted with how they're all dead. All of that original group is dead. So Hamp sort of stands as a kind of memorial as well. Like he can tell stories Mm of Willie Bryson and people like that. But you realize, even though we're introduced right away, that Hamp is essentially a dead man walking both visually and within the context of the film. We also realize that in his death will be the end of the living memory of all of these other soldiers. And um, so, so even he stands as a kind of, uh, version of memorial at the beginning of this yeah and it's also important to establish because of what he is accused of or what he's actually guilty of it's important to establish that he, he's not been a shirker and it's important to i mean he has endured a lot he has um previously faced the temptation of getting out of out of combat um so it's not really with him um I, it, it's not I, I think what they want to do is is, is they want to um they, they want to do away with the suspicion of cowardice at the beginning. 
And th this is not somebody who's been cowardly. Um, and so I, I think that's 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 important to establish, as you say. He's he kind of represents the the arc of arc of the war at, at the at the very beginning. So he kind of becomes a statement about just how much somebody can or should endure in in, in a war. And I think it helps to to create um, you know sympathy for him at the ver at the very beginning. Yeah, I um. I love when Hargreaves is is in court and he's talking about Hamp and he points out to the folks on the court martial basically he's been here longer than any of us. So yeah. so it's it's he's yeah he's not a not a newcomer to this. Um so when I was thinking about what this movie is about um it seems to me that one way to read this is that you know it's the story of how Hamp like so many others moves from being a living breathing human person into sort of a footnote in the historical record mm. we're seeing a person become a statistic or a or a next of kin letter home and when we get to the end of this we'll talk about that next of kin letter home because that's a very interesting letter as well in terms of thinking about the historical record um and it's interesting because throughout the movie even from the very beginning you see other people talking about hamp as if he's in this liminal space between being a human and being a statistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I found that very, very interesting to, you know, I, as I watched this a second time to realize that, like, I, I think watching the opening um, introduction of Hargreaves talking to, I think he's talking to Webb because uh, Hargreaves is sort of on the scene now to be this attorney. Uh, and Hargreaves does not seem like a, like he's going to be a sympathetic figure to, um, to Hamp. And actually, uh, Hargreaves is, I think, the is truly the center of this movie because I think he's the one with the biggest arc in the film. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Sam, because that was that was one of the things that I was thinking about as well. And that is that you know the the film is um, evidently or apparently on the surface it's about Hamp, but it really is about Hargreaves, um, as you said, because he describes it. He he actually describes an arc uh, as a character. He's the one that really changes and he's the one that of course kind of really articulates uh the main theme of the, the main theme of the film it really is is all about how he interprets the actions that are going on and he kind of stands between hamp and uh, and the other officers and and he also ends up kind of sharing he's a complex character because he shares a number of different views um he doesn't just have one single perspective and so he he's the one person who seems to have a complex view of what's of what's going on at the same time he has kind of a clear um judgment on what's happened as, as well um back to the, that that notion of sort of becoming a statistic this is this is articulated by the colonel the head of the of the um the court martial uh, you know in case you weren't sure this was the theme uh he 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 reiterates this i find it so interesting how like um how much of this movie involves uh at least the 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 higher uh, class soldiers um, reciting poetry and making allusions to other things. Although we have Hamp, you know, and maybe it's Dead Hamp reading uh, reading Hausman, but you get uh, you get the Colonel quoting from uh, John Mansfield's poem biography: "When I'm buried, and all my thoughts and acts will be reduced to dates and facts, and long before this wandering flesh is rotten, the dates which made me will." be all forgotten so you know there, there's this great back and forth of poetry between hargreaves and the colonel but I, but you know at that point he's he's even again restating this this sort of notion of you know soldiers becoming statistics human lives becoming statistics and um 
you know, Mansfield's not writing that. I mean, this is from 1911 or 12. So he's not writing that. That's not a war poem. That's just a poem about life. So I mean, the, the colonel is, I think, sort of saying like, yes, this happens to soldiers in a war, but does this not, is this not the way of all life that we just become, we just become these, uh, these numbers that are then forgotten. Yeah, there's a kind of hidden irony in him, him quoting that, that Maysfield poem because the last stanza is best trust the happy moments. What they gave makes man less fearful of a certain grave and gives his work compassion and new eyes. The days that make us happy make us wise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about that. You know, that's where the poem ends, but there's no way that that's an appropriate stanza for this particular action. And then, as you say, you've got Hargreaves quoting Lewis Carroll's Mock Turtle song. There's a porpoise behind me and it's treading on, on my tail. So it's like they're also kind of trading off these. The, 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 I mean, I, why is Hargreaves quote the Mock Turtle song of, of all things? I, I think part of it is it's just he's trying to deal with the it's, it's a way of dealing with the absurdity of the situation that he's facing. And it seems like he takes, you know, he takes that uh, Lewis Carroll as a way of speaking of speaking for that. Whereas uh, you get the much more serious uh, line from lines from Maysfield. Right, and uh, the only, th- and again, I, I am less familiar with Lewis with Lewis Carroll, um, but it also I means that the Mock Turtle song is ultimately about the snail getting pushed off to France to die. Right? I mean, right. isn't that the you know? So there is there is this this uh this sense that this is why um the that this is this is why Hamp and all of these other soldiers what happened to them is for various things they got encouraged and and pushed off. To, you know to cross the channel and ultimately mm-hmm. this this leads to that um uh i want to talk about the character of hamp because i find him to be a, a very interesting character uh in that you know as we said the this is based on a play called uh called hamp so you mm-hmm. think he's the center of this but as we said he sort of serves a, i think almost as a character for other people to mm-hmm. reflect on and project on um and hamp is very um He's 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 very very simple in a believable way, you know that you know even at the the trial it's not. Um, I was kind of moved by when Hamp says to says to Hargreaves at the trial, like you know Hamp is given this opportunity to speak for himself, and he's like, no no you you say my you tell my story better. That there is this sense that like you know Hamp is um, uncomfortable in that trial. Also, he seems to have no idea. Um, at least at the beginning of the film, what he actually is facing. And even during the trial, he seems surprised by what's going on, um, which again makes him a, a simple character, but also a sympathetic character, especially in the hands of, or in the mouth of someone like Hargreaves. You know, I think if we were psychologizing Hamp today, we probably would say that he entered what uh, what's sometimes called a fugue state. Um, and that may be one of the other reasons why he can't really account for it. You know, that, that, that in a sense, he, he isn't really sure why he did what he did. So there's not only a failure maybe to fully grasp what he did, but there may also be a sense that he doesn't maybe even fully remember what, 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 what he did. Um, and he's not really for that reason, able to articulate it. And he also seems fundamentally um, kind of inarticulate. And in, in, in that sense, he sort of serves as a representative for, as you were saying earlier, um, Sam, kind of all those, all those sort of anonymous soldiers that, uh, that, that, that died. And he kind of serves as a representation of that. Um, so I think it's important that 
he allow Hargraves to speak for him because that's, as he says, that's not really something he can articulate him, himself. So it's it's one more way in which he is kind of a he is kind of a screen on which others project their under their uh, project their view of things. So it's it's not as though Hargreaves isn't speaking Hamp's truth, but Hargreaves is kind of creating what he thinks is Hamp's truth and expressing that. And Hamp is Hamp is kind of fine with that. But I also think there's other ways in which Hamp becomes, I mean, he becomes a screen that the other soldiers project onto. I mean, I think Hamp is the rat that the other soldiers are putting on trial. They, there's that very, I mean, it's a very strange scene when they come around with, uh, with the night before he's executed. And it seems like it's a way of kind of bucking him up and kind of being, you know, his, his colleague. But then they start abusing him at the same time. Uh, you know, they blindfold him and, uh, and and they put him through this kind of blind man's blind man's bluff game. So there's a sense in which Hamp is always kind of this um, uh, this blank on which other people then kind of play out their particular uh, drama, and, and especially in the case of, of Hargreaves. Well, I think about that the, the, the night before the execution. That scene hit me really hard because what I realized is um to my mind that is everybody else involved so you you actually get three two or three visitors depending on how you think about it right you get the the other common soldiers who get him drunk and they don't just blindfold him they reenact or i guess pre-enact the execution right they yeah, blindfold sure. him and they so there is this sense of like they're trying to comfort him but i also feel like there's this degree of trying to absolve themselves a little mm. bit to say like um, so, cause one of the soldiers, I actually, I have this written down here. One of the soldiers as he's comforting Hamp before his death says, there's no disgrace at all here today, gone tomorrow. It doesn't matter who kills you. Does it, uh, mm. you lived a long life. You're done. You rot in the mud. And that's that we're moving up soon. We'll all be rat food before long. So it's almost like he's saying like, it, well, either we shoot you or the Germans shoot you. Like it's like, you're going to die either way. So there is this kind of self absolution in mm-hmm. what they're saying. And then you think about the next people to come, right? You get the priest co- who comes and gives him communion, literally absolving Hamp. But it's like, okay, Hamp is a mirror there saying, does, if you accept this, does that then absolve us, mm-hmm. you know, in this kind of religious context. And then you get the, I don't know if he's a doctor or medic or what, but the guy who gives him the shot to put him to sleep again, there's sort of this absolving because we don't have to hear Hamp's cries then presumably. And, you know, while he is contemplating the next morning and even while he is, um, while he is being shot there. So it's like this sort of triple attempt to absolve people trying to absolve themselves. And in essence, almost kind of asking Hamp, like, tell us this is okay. Tell us what we're about to do is okay. Well, it's, but it, but also, Sam, it's it's one more way. You know, I, I think of all of the, of the three films that we've talked about: Breaker, Morant, Paz Glory, and this one. I think this is the one film that takes the the broadest view of the bar- barbarism of war. I think I think this this is the film which is most powerful in its indictment of war. Uh, and I mean, World War One is an appropriate uh, war to choose for that theme because it was supposed to be right the war to end all wars. And so the so there's almost uh, Losey worked with Bertolt Brecht. I mean, there's almost a Brechtian quality to the way this to the way that scene that we just have talked about is played out. But I think what's going on with this 
all these various efforts at absolution, and even when you get to the actual execution itself, is there's there's this horrible absurdity that in the midst of death, in the midst of the daily death of thousands of men, they find it very difficult to kill this one guy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they try not to kill this one guy, right? Um, and they're told they have to, and even when they do, it's it's terribly botched. So I think to me that that's one of the ways in which the film really take it it it, it, it asks you to, to focus on what are we really doing in a war? We are killing people. And 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 because we do so with technology and because we do so in such great numbers, you don't stop to think what you're actually doing. You are executing individuals one by one. So what does it actually mean to execute somebody? So so to me, I think that's that's why the film is so powerful in 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 the way it handles that that particular um, you know it's a cliche of course but but the way it handles that because it's it's deeply true mm-hmm. absolutely no and I think that stuff lands uh, land, lands really hard and that's also you know part of the core of what Hargreaves says in his in his yes. uh, closing statements um, I also found Hamp really interesting in terms of his motivations for war. So when he's first asked yeah. by Hargreaves, you know, his his response is to just name the title of the film for King and Country. It's like this is like I did it the way reason everybody else. And then he tells this very pathetic, sad story about like his mother-in-law and his wife, who he says has moved on to somebody else, basically daring him to go that they don't think much of him. And it and and you know, and I I wonder if those a story like that, even in 1964, rings truer or differently to a British audience mm-hmm. who knows people who, you know, who either went to the war and came back or have grandfathers or 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 relatives or things like this who went to the war and didn't come back and think like, yeah, why did they go? What was and, and, and how much um, energy was put into how do we motivate these young men to go? Uh, to go and and fight and die, uh, and how much shame there isn't to the people who don't go. Um, you know, I, I I wonder how if that rings different to a British audience than maybe an American audience, and especially an American audience this much removed from the war now. Um, mm-hmm. But I found that I found that really an interesting picture of Hamp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about the character of of Hargreaves? So we've talked about him as kind of the main character. Um, how would you? describe the nature of his arc and and i asked this because as i was re-watching it i had forgotten about a line that one of the first things he says and how there is this circle back to it at the end one of the first things he says to webb he's sort of upset about the court martial in general he says if a dog breaks his back you shoot him you don't sit around and talk about it mm-hmm. and the second time i watched this movie that smacked me in the face mm-hmm. because i by then i knew what the final scene of yeah. this movie is and i was just thinking Wow, how differently does that line ring yeah. when you see that Hargreaves is kind of I mean, um Webb is getting ready to take his gun out, but Webb doesn't want to shoot Hamp at the end. And Hargreaves is like, I'm going to do this, but he's not doing it like shooting a dog with a broken back exactly. Mm-hmm. Um it, so so I found that really beautifully laid in there at the beginning because I think that that lays out uh, a version of his arc. Yeah, I, I, it, because, yeah, so where he begins, of course, I think in, a, in an earlier statement, uh, he says, we're all on trial for our lives. He's failed as a man and a soldier. So 
So he starts out with that position. He also starts out with a certain amount of resentment towards Hamp um, because Hargreaves has been put in this position of defending somebody whom he thinks is indefensible uh, because it's it's clear what he's done. There's really no there's no reason to um, to kind of think any further about it. Let's just get the show trial over. So I think that that that's where he begins with a fairly. Um, I guess you could say simple, maybe even simplistic judgment of uh, of Hamp. And certainly in terms of the three films we've watched, this is the, on this theme, this is the one where there's no doubt about guilt. That's that's not really the issue. So, I mean, I, I think this, the film will only work for you, Sam, in a way, if you believe in Hargreaves' arc. You know, I mean, so, some some critics of the film have said, I you know, I, I don't believe in Hargreaves' arc. And he starts out with a very clear view. There's really, there's really no reason for him to... Uh, to deviate, but he does because, well, first of all, I think he becomes convinced by Hamp's story. I think, he, I mean, he becomes convinced by the idea that Hamp just couldn't stand listening to the guns anymore. And 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 one of the other ironies that the film sets up is that if you engage in a normal action, which is I'm just going to go for a walk, because you are no longer a civilian, but you're in, in the army, that act is now criminalized. So to me, it's one more way in which the film talks about or suggests that war inverts or even perverts a lot of basic um, elements of, 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 of civilization. And of course, that's hard, the center of Hargreaves' argument, right? He ends up saying, are we not fighting to preserve some notion of justice, of decency? If justice is not done, other men are dying for nothing. And I think that that's what he becomes convinced. I think he becomes convinced that hemp, the hemp is, is not a coward uh, and that he has responded in an actually normal human response. I mean, who could stand all those years under, under fire? And so that's, that's the arc. But at the same time, when he has his final interview with Ham, right? There's still that sense, and this is why I think Hargreaves is an interesting character, because he's complex. There's still that sense that you shouldn't be thanking, thanking me, you shouldn't have done this, this really shouldn't have been a necessary thing that we, we would have had to go through. So I think he's, and, and maybe that's why he has to shoot Hamp at the end, because he has to, as you said, he has to kind of come back to that initial comment, even though he has very different feelings about it now. Yeah, I, um, I love the fact that the whole time I, I, there is that they don't have the thing that would appear in a movie very often, which is like, we need to have the moment where Hamp and Hargreaves connect and the music swells. And we realize yeah. it's like, so, so you're the whole time you're kind of wondering, you don't get an insight into Hamp or excuse me, into Hargreaves internally. You only get the things that he says and the mm -hmm. things he says, um, like you said, the, you know, when he goes to talk to Hamp, like it's he 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 does say like you know basically like like why did you have to do this you know almost yeah. um and and I I like that about Hargreaves because the move but the because the movie does convince you that he has that he has been on this arc even though you don't get the an internal monologue or you don't get a an artificial scene where you see them connect you watch them have a conversation and that conversation works on you the viewer enough and then you see hargreaves express some things so it leads you to say this must have also worked on hargreaves mm -hmm. and i really like that i mean this this film trusts you as a viewer to like 
to go on that journey, you know, and, and I've sometimes been critical of movies when I say like, they tell me an emotion or a feeling, but I don't see it. I see it in this, but I see him as like, he realizes we still have to fight this war too. It's not like, this is not something happening after the fact, this is something happening, you know, amidst the war. Uh, I, in in that you quoted from his um, closing statement. I love that opening part about the guns and how they've become too much a part of our everyday life. Um, this war is too old and we have grown too old in it. Um, he's expressing this um, refrain uh, that, that that speaks to kind of the potential absurdity of the war. And this is what his argument turns on, right? He's basically saying, you know, there's this uh, this song the soldiers would sing, we're here because we're here. And it, it which is an absurd statement. It's like, why are we fighting this war? We're fighting this war because we're fighting this war. And he's And he's basically calling that out and saying, there has to be a, if 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 we have bought into we're here because we're here then what then what have we become what have we done that's where he pulls out and says if we if we are not fighting for justice then mm-hmm. then like what have we created here and this has no end to it i really loved that part of the argument and i love well love in in terms of an interesting character, Midgley, the oh. the prosecutor, because mm-hmm. Midgley, that at the evening of of the the close of the trial, you know, after Hargreaves made that statement, says, "You did very well. I hope you get him off." Which I genuinely believe, because it feels like everybody's like, "Man, I wish we didn't have to do this, mm-hmm. but we have to do this." But then he says, "But you know, a proper court is concerned with the law. Yes. It's a bit." Uh, amateur to plead for justice, which is interesting because you would think he would say to plead for mercy, mm-hmm. but he's saying, no, no, no. The problem is you pled for justice. Courts aren't about justice. They're about law, which is like, wow, what a statement to say. You think that's what this is about? <laughs> this like, like, like that is a, a very particular view of, of um, a legal system, a court system, a government, a military. Uh, yeah, that that line blew me away and made me really think. Okay, what is the difference between law and justice? Uh, yeah, it's a great, I, it's a great moment in this movie. Yeah, I actually not only did I write that one down, Sam, but I bolded it. Yeah, <laughs> because because I mean, I you know, I I I would have thought, I guess I'm an amateur, right? I I, I would have thought that law is the means to achieve justice to achieve justice, but that's not the case. Um, I I I, I do love the way the film has. Um, they're able to have their their cake and eat it too, right? Because they do they do recommend clemency, uh, and headquarters comes down, overrules them, and it's almost like an aside the way that happens. It's like, oh, wait, wait a minute, why are they executing him? I, I thought everybody was everybody wanted him to get off, and and then you kind of learn, you know, almost incidentally all this because HQ, and then of course then you have a conversation about another key element that comes up in war films, which is what do you do to bolster morale. You know, people are feeling really, uh, you know, they're really having a hard time going on. How do you bolster morale? Hey, let's kill somebody. Um, let's execute somebody. And, you know, and, and what, I forget, maybe it's Webb, somebody says, or maybe it's the colonel. You know, somebody says, well, did, did that ever work? You know, does well. Who knows? It's just, it's just one of those things you do. You execute people for doing the wrong thing. I mean, did it, did it work in Paths of Glory? I, I I don't know, you know, but it's that that issue. If you if you put people to death for not dying, it does does it in does it motivate other people to die? Right, because it's interesting. Basically, they're saying um, we're about to move up to the front line, so this is what we're going to do to motivate our soldiers. Yeah, I mean, it, it it you know, and it, so 
and and, and not only are we going to execute them, we're going to have our soldiers execute him yes. to, to motivate them to go and fight. You know, like it is, it is the most convoluted thinking, but it is, you know, it is the thinking, right? And it is what Paz the Glory said too: is like we need to make an example, right? You know, like um, uh, uh, Hargreaves quotes from Voltaire: the pour encourager les autres, right? The to for the encouragement of others, we're going to execute yes, this person, yes, even yeah. though we probably shouldn't. We're going to do that. Um, and unlike and unlike in Breaker Morant, they in fact make a mess of it. Yes, uh, um, because they don't they don't want to kill him. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm assuming that this was deliberate. I mean, he had what 12, 12 rifles trained on him. I mean, obviously, these guys did not want to hit him. So, well, and if you pay attention, um, when they're, I loved the scene when they are about to shoot him, you get a POV shot of one of the soldiers and you mm-hmm. see the barrel of the yes. gun move away from Hamp. Yeah. And you re- so, I, so it makes me wonder, like, did anybody shoot him or are they all like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the one or, or at least, um, the director is saying, I'm going to put you in the point of view of having to point this gun at him. And uh, instinctively you're, you're going to not want to be the one to shoot him. So I'm going to, I'm going to allow you to be in the point of view of the person who is moving the gun away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause clearly multiple people had to do that or they are terrible shots at essentially. Yes, exactly. Range. exactly. Uh, what, what, you know, one more point I want to make about Hargreaves' uh, change, because this is something that's communicated visually, and that is when he trips and falls in the mud. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's one more way in which he becomes kind of aligned with Hamp and aligned with the soldiers on the front line, because every, you know, all the other soldiers, all the other officers, I mean, every, first of all, I, I did want to say one, one of the things I felt about this film after watching it was I felt so dirty and cold. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even though the film's been criticized for being a little bit stagey because it's based on a play, as you said, it's, it is very talky. But it's also it also makes a lot of use of uh, of the set or the location, whichever it was. And I don't think there's a scene in which it doesn't rain, and I don't think there's a scene in which people aren't muddy. So when Hargreaves falls, and and then he doesn't really wipe off his hand, right? His mm-hmm. hand, he's carrying that, that that letter, but his hand is all mud covered. So to me. That's a really important moment where Hargreaves realizes that as an officer, he is not above the fray. And that's one more foreshadowing of the fact that he's going to have to be the guy that pulled the trigger when it comes to Hamp's death. I want to talk about the 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 other sort of common soldiers, because this movie moves back and forth between the officers and the soldiers. Um, and uh, this I, I realize who I'm talking to as I say this. I can't think of the play that I would that I would speak. This feels Shakespearean a little bit to be like, here's the high status characters, here's the low status characters, and the there there's a sort of a commentary on what's happening in the like yes. high status part of the play. So they they serve as a chorus sort of there, um, and there's also like you said, there's the reenacting. So they they um, do their own trial, the the trial of the rat, which just. Um, it's kind of a brilliant little thing, you yeah. know, that, that they do that. And then they, they, what's interesting is the movie telegraphs something, um, which is in the trial of the rat, you get a very sympathetic attorney, uh, yes. <laughs> um, cross-examination and it sort of feels like they're going to be on the side of the rat, but then the next scene you see them execute the rat and you're like, 
oh, this is this is how this is going to again. Second time through, I realized, oh, he told me the end already. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's right. But, but That's you right. didn't. But you didn't know it. And 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 that again. Um, am I wrong to say that feels a little Shakespearean to do the kind of high and low? Oh, absolutely. No, yeah, you were, yeah, yeah, that's spot on, Sam. And it's uh, very much Henry V, um, where you go back and forth between Henry and, and, the, and the common soldiers. The other thing I would say about that rat scene, to kind of come back to a point I made earlier, is the rat is on trial for being a rat. That's all it's done wrong. It's just been a rat. And the argument the film is making, I think, is that Hamp is on trial for being a human being. Mm. Uh, and 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 responding like a normal human being. In other words, in other words, again, not to belabor the point, but the the film is getting at the way in which war uh, creates a topsy turvy world, uh, in which people are supposed to behave in ways that are uncivilized. If they behave in civilized ways, they are they are they are punished. So, to me, e- even though it does it pretty subtly, I think I think the film is as powerful as any that I've watched that kind of helps us get at that idea of how is it that we allow war to kind of normalize insanity? And how is it that even though there are such things as the rules of war, other rules like the rule of law and the rule of justice uh, seem to be uh, in some ways um, perverted as a result of war. Yeah. And I think that, that to me, this movie is, uh, more effective in 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 ways than um, something like uh, Paths of Glory. In that, to, to point out some things you've already said, that in that, like Hamp did the thing that they said. It's you know Paths of Glory. It's it's almost like this pretty absurd situation of like we're going to randomly select so, like like this is like no this guy did this, but let's really think about what he did. Yeah, yeah. And um and and it, so th- that that way it seems less like. It seems more realistic, but as absurd as yes. when when you dig into it. Where um, Paz of Glory seems like this is about the absurdity of war. This movie sees feels more like this is a reality of war, and isn't that absurd? If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing that I found really interesting as we're as we're getting to the sort of the end of this film um, is the final exchange before. Uh, Hargreaves shoots Hamp because you get uh, you get Hamp or excuse me you get Hargreaves exasperated pulling the blindfold off of Hamp and saying isn't it finished yet so it's like you can tell this is also this is also working on Hargreaves but it's also sort of unfair to say to the person who's being shot isn't it finished yet like it's like he wants to say that to everybody else but for some reason, he's saying he finds himself saying it to Hamp is like nobody else wants to just deal with the reality of what's happening. And then to f- the fact that you see Hamp, his last line of the movie is "No, sir, I'm sorry." That he's apologizing, apologizing as, yeah, as he's been in front of a firing squad and now is about to get shot by his defense attorney and an act <laughs> of mercy. Like, like again, if if you haven't found the 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 realistic absurdity yet because everything about what Hamp says in that last line is true. Hamp really is truly sorry. He's sorry for to Hargreaves. He's not sorry for what he did necessarily because what he did is what he did, but he's like, I am sorry to put you to have put you through this, sir. Um, And like, that's a heartbreaking uh, final line for someone to say before they're executed. Uh, so Sam, I, I don't like hunting for Christ figures, and I, and I'm not sure that I'm going to make an argument that Hamp is a Christ figure. But I will point out that um, 
Hargreaves' question to, to Hamp, is it finished, echoes one of Jesus' last, seven last words on the cross, right? It mm. is finished. And just as Jesus forgives those who are crucifying him, Hamp says, I'm sorry. So I, I, I do think there's kind of an undercurrent of that kind of um, that kind of Christian Christian symbolism going on at the, uh, here. But at the same time, it's important for the film, I think, to make Hargreaves in some way culpable uh mm-hmm. because he i mean he is he is he is part of the military command whether he likes it or not and he just as he earlier had mud on his hands he now has blood on his hands uh and i and i think that's an that's an important element of of his experience as well well and an interesting question we sometimes ask with movies is like well what is the next day like yeah. and it's like this one's not hard to imagine because because of the complexities of hargreaves I imagine he goes back to work. Yeah. And like he, ha- he has to wrestle with, the, and he probably, you know, might be somebody who is in his eighties in 1964. And this moment still kind of haunts him, but it's, or, but, but he has had to go on and live his life. Or maybe he's dead the next day. Right. Well, right. <laughs> it's right. I mean, it's good. Go either way. Yeah. Um, another interesting that I found interesting about this movie, just because thinking about this in 1964, um, the language of mental health yes rings really interestingly in 2023 because that's a phrase that we would use all of the time but it's interesting in the trial that is the thing that um heart that's the argument hargreaves is trying to make is like yes he did this but this is a mental health issue um which seems uh progressive for 1964 maybe i don't i guess i wasn't alive in 1964 i don't know how much the language of mental health was i'm sure it was not as ubiquitous as it is today but but that struck me as really interesting yeah i don't know i don't know at what point in the war you know they started talking about shell shock but um you, you, this is one of the elements of the trial we haven't talked about a wonderful cameo appearance by leo mckern as this as this terrible doctor who um decides that it's not shell shock, it's cold feet, and he prescribes laxatives for, for every condition. Which was really interesting is at the beginning, when Hamp has to keep going to the latrine, you think either he's sick or it's an evidence of his cowardice, something like that. And now you discover, no, I mean, it's because this doctor says he needs he needs a laxative. So I think it is interesting that, you know, I, as I said, I don't know when shell shock became a, people began to accept that or, you know, PTSD uh, as a genuine um uh, explanation or a genuine diagnosis, but the, it, you could argue in some senses that the doctor is one of the villains of the film because he doesn't because he doesn't want to recognize the possibility that people might actually be suffering from a a mental condition and not just be be cowards. Right, and and okay, and not to absolve the doctor, but it's not hard to read the doctor saying, "If I do this." Yeah, we yeah. send everybody home. Like, right, like this right. war's over the second we start to st- start to open up the Pandora's box of mental health. Right. But, but, yeah. But, but, which also kind of gets to the same issue we have with Hamp, which is we have to have a rule that applies to all. We mm-hmm. can't. We you know we can't say this specific case might be different. So you're right. In a way, the doctor has to do that. But there's also the sense that that he's just. He's just one more piece in this machinery that can't exactly. actually recognize any deviations. Yeah, and that—that's what I'm saying is that the, yeah. is the—it's—it's—it's the, it's, it's the doctor's fault, but it's the doctor's fault in that he's part of this larger system right, right, that like right. yeah. requires people like like Hamp to act in a particular way and to to ignore these other things. Um, 
I want to say Leo McKern, when I saw him, I, I just was like, oh my gosh, I don't know who this is, but this is a face I have spent so much time with. Yes. And then and then I finally realized he plays, for me, he is Thomas Cromwell in A Man for All Seasons. That's, oh. the, that's my reference point for him, which is a movie I used to teach, so I saw it so many times. But I saw him on screen and thought, I know this, I know this person really well. And that, that for me, that's my Leo McKern. No, for me, he's number two in the prisoner. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the movie ends after the execution with a reading of the next of kin letter. Yeah. Um, and we see that the next of kin letter, which if we're paying attention is given to Hargreaves by the Colonel, um, when they do the little poetry exchange, uh, you know, he's gives them that kind of offhandedly. And we realize that the next of kin letter says, uh, we regret to inform you that private AJ Hamp killed in action October 22nd. So the next of kin letter is this, here's my question for you. Is this an act of mercy or cowardice on behalf of the Colonel? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, yeah. The most generous reading, obviously, yes. It's an act of mercy. We don't want you to let you know that he was shot as as, as a deserter. Um, it's but but at the same time, of course, yeah. It, it it's a it's a commentary on the court's own uh, failure to want to admit what they what they've done. So yeah. Well, and it's interesting because if we go back to what I was saying earlier about this is a movie about how people become statistics, people become yes, just yes. a footnote in the historical record. We see this in the in the moment is writing is altering and and writing the historical record inaccurately. Mm-hmm. We see like, oh yes, we're going to there will be no record of this because the official letter says this other thing. You know, Hamp Hamp becomes the fact and date that Macefield was talking about. Yes, but it's not true. Right, right. right. It's, it's not true to what happens. Um, but as Macefield says, his story does also fade away. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so then I imagined, um, and I love that there's not this scene in the movie, but I imagined this this letter that we just heard coming home, coming mm-hmm. home to the wife who has moved on, to the wife and mother-in-law who kind of bullied him or dared him to volunteer. Like, how does that land for them? Um, yeah, I just, I just like, 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 I love that those things are seated and the movie begs you to think about them without saying, we're not going to show you that stuff, but... But think about these things. I would also point out, Sam, that that's one more way in which, you know, this is an 89-minute film. I, I, I've said before in this podcast many times, I love 90-minute films. And it just just, remind, it just makes me think about the economy of this film. There's really, there's really no moment in this film that, to one degree or another, we haven't talked about. Because really, every moment kind of matters. And so even the letter, which could be just a grace note, has all of those various implications you've talked about. It's also interesting to think that uh, that uh, Lausi, as long uh, along with being a um, a blacklisted uh, blacklisted director, is also a World War II veteran, yes. right? So he's making this, uh, you know, uh, twenty years post World War II. Um, so it's interesting to think about this is this is not just somebody writing about combat. This is somebody who was in combat in the next World War. Well, that's also true. One of the things I wanted to point out was that's also true of Dirk Bogard, who plays Hargreaves. Uh, Bogard, in fact, was one of supposedly, some people have questioned this, but he was supposedly one of the first Allied officers into Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Hmm. Uh, And it left such a deep impression on him that for the rest of his life, if somebody that he knew was a German of his generation stepped into an elevator with him, he would step out. 
Um, he had such an antipathy toward Germany. His job, actually, in, in World War II, he was a um, uh, he was a reconnaissance photographer. Uh, he, he would analyze reconnaissance photography to determine where the bombs should be dropped. Uh, so part of his um, chastening was visiting a site where he'd been responsible for a bomb being dropped and seeing the bodies of these children who had been killed. So he was somebody who struggled a lot with um, uh, with the, the war as a result. Although he went on to have roles as Germans, as maybe his most famous role was in the Night Porter. Um, when he just a, a footnote on him, when he came into the film, he had been a very big star uh, in in Britain, British films. Um, started out as a romantic lead, and then he made a series of comedies called the Doctor films and made him the biggest film star in England in the 50s. But then he started turning to more serious roles. And this is one of five films, actually, that he made uh, with Losey. Uh, so he comes into the film, very important. Courtney comes into the film as a rising star. He had just starred in two films, one called Billy Liar, and the other, maybe a more famous one, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Uh, so they're both pretty important uh, actors coming into the film. Um. How does so so to, to circle back to the beginning of this film? How does this film stand as a kind of war memorial in and of itself? Fifty years later, yeah, you know, I I was thinking about that, Sam. I was thinking, I, if if you would asked me, you know, where I would rank this film, I I, I would have said, well, I'm not going to call it a masterpiece, but I I I'm going to call it a a really well made neglected film. I I mean, I, the the more you and I talk about this film, actually. The higher it rises in my uh, in my estimation, and it's not it's not in the in the Losey canon. It's not a film that gets talked about very much, from what I can tell. But at the time, it got it got four kind of uh, versions of British Academy Awards, so it did very well at the at the time. And I, I I think it's a film that ought to be put into the war film canon in a way that it hasn't been up to now. I a hundred percent agree. I like th- this movie is and part of it is its economy part of it is like it is it's not doing a lot um it's not spending a lot of time but it's it's loaded with things that you can kind of pick apart and say well this is an interesting choice because if it's only 89 minutes why this why this thing why this you know i i really think uh, there's a lot going on here the other interesting thing this movie's made in 1964 that's the same year as dr strange love yes um so it is a world war one movie made by world war ii veterans so i also like wondered is this saying anything about the cold war because it's also made by a blacklisted director mm. right um uh very left-leaning director like like does this say anything to the world of the the cold war in 1964 you know you're messing with my head sam because i was about to say paths of glory is also about 90 minutes we could do a great do a double feature in one sitting but now i'm thinking you're right why not pair this with dr strangelove and have and have a conversation about these two films finding very different ways to talk about the absurdity of of, Mm -hmm. of war that would be great absolutely is there anything else you want to talk about with this film? Yeah, just one more, one more quick comment that um, you know you mentioned at the beginning the way Losey uses archival uh, footage and archival photographs. Um, I also like it's almost a little absurdist touch. I like the way he inserts those little scenes from home. So you, yes. there, there, there's three of those. You get um, Hamp's son. You get you get Len in bed, uh, presumably having slept with Hamp's wife, and then you get just kind of a street scene. Uh, in in Islington, so th- those are, I guess you could call those. Um, they're kind of pseudo subjective, you know, because you can imagine maybe this is what Hamp is thinking. 
um, or they're almost documentary. So they're, they're odd little vignettes, and yet he inserts them in a way to kind of remind us of the reality of home, and it's one more way that he kind of humanizes Hamp. Uh, and and that's where Hamp was trying to walk to, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- those are just little little elements, but they, they really help round out the picture. Uh, well, what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Uh, a, a, a change of pace, uh, sort of, sort of. Um, so the Criterion Collection just dropped a, a, a 10 film collection of Linda Darnell films. And if you don't know Linda Darnell, you, you, you should. Um, so this gives me the opportunity to, to bring us back to Preston Sturgis one more time. Um, and it's a film that I've been wanting to do for a while. Now it's available in that collection. Preston Sturgis is 1948, Unfaithfully Yours. Uh, with Linda Darnell and uh, Rex Harrison. Uh, it's the last great film that Sturgis made. Fantastic. Barrett, uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for uh, for recommending this film. This is, like I said, this was something I had never heard of, but I agree with you. The more I talk about this with you, the more I sat down and wrote questions, the more I thought, this is great. This is like, this. this movie is 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 uh is better than like oh this is a good version of a something like this but like i actually think this is a pretty great movie um and uh, i can't wait to, i i talked with uh chris garrett's about this who teaches a course in the first world war and he had never seen this i don't think he'd heard of it so mm-hmm. i definitely wanted to tell him like you got to watch this this one is uh this is i think a really useful movie for thinking particularly about uh the remembrance of war and memorials yeah. and things like that so thank you so much for recommending this thanks for the conversation that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about unfaithfully yours in the video store mm-hmm.